Welcome to the Point Noted Podcast with your host, Johnny B, and co-host who shows up whenever he wants to, former NFL player, Rashad Barksdale. It's raw, unfiltered, and no topic is off-limit. We talk sports, entertainment, culture, and a whole lot of random shit. Let's get to the point. on the podcast you're hanging out with your host johnny b and on today's show i have a special guest in the house um really perhaps uh the only person that has been arrested by the fbi and yet went on to receive a, a community service award from the fbi so i know you tell us about it and we'll dig into that as well uh welcome and credit to the show ed how are you johnny i'm great thanks so much to, for the opportunity to be here Absolutely, man. Thanks for joining us, man. On a beautiful Saturday like this, there's so much stuff we can be doing outside. Uh, but here we are, inside, chatting away. Well, it's wonderful to be here with you and talking to your amazing audience. Thank you. Absolutely. Uh, Ed, where are you from? Originally from Massachusetts. I lived in San Francisco since about since 88. San Francisco. What was the big difference when you move out there between coming from uh, East Coast in Massachusetts to going out there on the West Coast? Booze, drinking. <laughs> uh, 16, well, when I was I was a small town kid, the, okay. the cliche story: the the small town kid who didn't really fit in, couldn't play sports, liked to read. You know, I was really into the imagination. I was very sensitive. I used to cry quite mm. easily. So these things didn't really ingratiate me into the the cliques of popular kids in a small town high school. When I got out to San Francisco when I was 16 years old, man, I found this taste of freedom and I found the taste of the World Gate vodka. And they associated with wow. each other real quick. I just found wow. this freedom. You know, I, I found for me, it wasn't uh, for me, drinking was very important. Yet it was the things that the drinking led to. And for me, those things were freedom, acceptance by my peers being able to talk to uh, to women or to you know to girl, like girls at the time when we were sixteen, mm. Just, you know, so many opportunities presented themselves, and drinking happened to be a part of it. Uh, right. Why you know for me the drinking as as you know maybe we'll talk about it more if you want drinking. Absolutely. Yeah, drinking drinking took me to some you know it's dark places. Huh? Yeah, well, so how old were you when you moved out there? I was. I went out for a vacation. It was supposed to be two weeks. When I was 16 years old, my uncle was a high-ranking army. He was a colonel. He was stationed on the on the base there in San Francisco. So I went out to spend a couple of weeks with his family. A couple of weeks turned into a summer, a summer of heavy, heavy drinking, mm. smoking cigarettes, hanging out in the playgrounds. You know, just all the freedom that I couldn't find or that I wouldn't allow myself to find in small town Massachusetts. From there, so, yeah, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I, I had done, b- before I started drinking, I had done well in school, so I placed relatively well on the standardized tests. When I was a junior in high school, I actually left high school and started college a year early. That's when I moved to San Francisco full-time in 87, and that's when the drinking and drug making really took off. Okay. Yeah, and we're going to spend, obviously, part of this show, majority of it also, talking about addiction, uh, drugs, and alcohol, and, you know, what it takes to overcome it, and really what happens when you do t- uh, when you do stop drinking. I know you mentioned, you know, you can be done with drugs, but drugs might not be done with you. Yeah. Um, and, and we'll definitely talk about that as well. 
Uh, but just to go back to, you know, the moving and the transition and, you know, how the whole drug thing started. Um, so you mentioned, you know, just the freedom that you didn't have in a small town Massachusetts, which is what you had when she went to San Francisco. Uh, besides that freedom, though, so what do you think led to some of that addiction that, you know, you started doing some of the drugs? Was it just a new crowd that you were hanging out with? Um, you know, or were you just exposed to a lot more things? The one thing to understand about addiction, at least from my perspective, is that right. those of us who are addicted, drugs are not our problem. Mm. Drugs are our attempt at a solution. Okay. And the insidious thing about drugs for the addicted person like me is drugs work as a solution. You know, when I took drugs, I could be a different person. When I took drugs and when I got high, I could be the author that I never had the discipline or the courage to become. When I took okay. drugs, I could be the, the football player who I always wished I could have been in, in high school, but I was too afraid to try out for the team or, or I lacked the discipline to stay on the team once I did try out. But okay. drugs, yeah, drugs were my solution. And the problem was me. The problem mm. was I hated myself. I was always the bullied kid who wouldn't stand up for himself on the schoolyard right. playground. I took that with me to my adult life. Okay. Yeah, drugs work. For me, they worked for about 15 years. I could get high and I could become, I I didn't even want to become a high version of myself. I wanted to become a whole new person, man. Mm. I hated hated who I was. There was a lot of negativity projected or a lot of negativity about myself and I projected that onto the world around me. So despite the fact that I was provided a college education Despite the fact that I went on to be hired and have a career with a biotech firm called Genentech that was mm. the number one company in America to work for, according to Fortune magazine at one point, they treated right. me very well. Despite okay. the fact that I was a homeowner in San Francisco, thanks to my, my family resources to buy a home, despite all these material things and opportunities, I was still me. And mm. no career in biotech, no home. No motorcycle like I used to ride. No, none of that is going to change the fact that I'm me. Until I address, and this may apply to other people struggling with addiction, until we address those root causes, until we get to the problem that we're using drugs to solve, it's going to be very difficult for us to live a meaningful life free from drugs. Right, right, absolutely. And uh, and you mentioned, you know, uh, the drugs was just a solution. Um, When... Um, I guess my question is, when did you start noticing you were hating yourself? Like, when did you notice that I didn't like who I was? Um, and when did you start using that drugs to be a coping mechanism for that? You know what I mean? Like, when did you say, okay, I, I, I don't like me. I don't, I hate me. I need this thing to make me feel better. Because it can't be at a young age, right? It can't be. For me, it was a young age. I knew very early on I was different from the other kids. I, I knew... I didn't maybe know at a conscious level that I hated myself, but I knew I couldn't fit in. I struggled to fit in. I would do these. You know, I remember once I brought a briefcase to school. You know, I carried my pay. I was like eight or something. I don't know how old I was, but I carried a briefcase to school and I would make these inventions that, that I would bring into school and I would come up with these little business ideas that I would try. Right. This was in fourth grade. So I, I was, and, and you know, I wore the, when every all the other kids were wearing work boots, I would I got these purple boots that were just wrong. You know, I would wear weird clothes. I, w- I would wear uh, you know like a silver necklace when the other kids. So I just I strove to to fit in, yet also to present myself as an individual. 
and this it just didn't work where I went to school. It wasn't, you know, the other kids were just being other kids. So I learned very early on that I just didn't fit in with my peer group. I, I mm. learned very, very early on that if I was going to express myself as an individual, that was going to lead to me being ostracized. Right, right. Did you have brothers and sisters? Yeah, I have a younger sister. She's a couple years she's she's a couple years younger than me. Okay, and they're all on the street and now. She's amazing. My sister's an incredible human being. Yeah, we're very close. She's done very very well in her career, her family. She yeah, she didn't pursue the same path. She she was <laughs> she's a lot smarter <laughs> than I am. So maybe she saw them. But I you know I, I hid my addiction, so I don't know if she saw the mistakes I made or I don't know if she was just naturally. Right. Uh, more emotionally intelligent than me. Right. She, you know, she didn't pursue the path I pursued. She, That's great. Well, That's know, great. When, um, where'd you go to college? I went to college at the University of San Francisco. Uh, okay, and how was that? I was, how was that, and how was the drug then? Were you still using? It was a blizzard, man. A blizzard of drugs. Oh. I, I started on coke, co cocaine oh. when I was a freshman, and cocaine, ecstasy. A little bit, a little bit of acid and mushrooms here and there, but a lot of cocaine through, mm. and a lot, a lot of drinking. I would remember, and I would do shameful things. You know, I used to. I was in my dorm room, high on coke, and I the, the bathrooms were a common bath. You had to go down the dormitory hall to get to the bathroom. And I was so ashamed of how high I was. I would urinate in a, an empty beer can and throw mm. the beer can out the window. Now, wow. I, I was so ashamed of how high. I didn't want people to see how high I was. Wow. And, uh, later on, I would do things. I, I got, I, I did so much coke one night, and then we were smoking marijuana. My heart started racing. Mm. I became very, I became terrified. I was going to have a heart attack. Right. My my friend came over. A couple of friends had to sit with me. You know, I just began to spiral all through college into these situations in, in which I would do shameful things. Then the right. next day I would wake up, and who wants to think about that, man? Who wants to be the guy who, who urinates in a beer can and tosses out the window? Hey, forget that. I'll just do more coke. And then the coke mm -hmm. would, would make me forget, and then I'd do more shameful things. And it just spiraled and spiraled. It was a very devastating right. situation. Right, right. So what was the, uh, what was the ha-ha moment for you? What was that moment like, ha, yeah, I got to stop. Or ha, this is the end for me. I don't like what this What was that moment for you? When did that happen? With that, I discovered a path to spirituality. I discovered a path that led me to spiritual pursuits. It was in October 2007. Mm. I, I'd thrown away everything of a material nature. I'd thrown away my home, my oh. life savings, okay. my, uh, my clothes. You know, I, I only owned one. I owned two kind of sets of clothes. You know, I wore, uh, during the day, I wore this filthy baseball jacket and these filthy slacks and Converse shoes held together with duct tape. At night, I wore a tuxedo. <laughs> wow, that, that was <laughs> extreme. Tuxedo, well, I worked at the strip clubs and, and they <laughs> fired me. The right. strip clubs gave me a good chance. I was a terrible employee. Mm. I was living in October 2007. Wait. Hey, you said strip clubs? I, I'm uh, sorry. Did you, say Did you say you were working at a strip club? Yeah, I worked at the strip clubs in San Francisco. My final. Doing what? You were a stripper? No, I was. I, I was the guy who, uh, if you go to a club, sometimes there'll be a guy wearing a tuxedo, or a and the guy takes you to uh, the table and introduces you to one of the entertainers. I was that guy. Oh, I was in the This is something I didn't know. Let's uh, let's do another segment and just talk about Ed stripping.
Um, <laughs> yeah, no, honestly, that, wouldn't have, that wouldn't have worked out well. I, yeah, I, I, but, I was, yeah, I was just a floor. Yeah, no, but go ahead. You were talking about the aha moment, how things kind of came back together for you. Oh, yeah. So I was wearing this filthy, filthy tuxedo, high on meth. I was, Johnny, I was steps away from long-term homelessness, from incarceration. I was committing felony weight. You know, my drug dealer would come over and because I didn't have any money for meth, he would give me felony weight packages of meth and say, hey, go drop this off to the car parked over there. This was in the North Beach area of San Francisco where there are cops everywhere. Because mm. this is where all the strip clubs are, the, sort of the nexus of strip clubs. And a lot of people okay. come from out of town. Nothing against out-of-towners, but it just happens that right. people come from out of town and hang out in North Beach. So there are cops everywhere. And I'm going around with a baseball-sized package of meth, dropping it off through empty car windows of people I don't know. This mm. my, so I was steps away from you know going into institutions, prison, homelessness, if I was lucky. Right. More likely, I was headed towards the grave. Hmm. It was uh, October 19, 2007. I'm dressed in my filthy, filthy tuxedo, shambling the sidewalks, hearing, because by this point, I'd been in meth psychosis for wow. over four years. And what meth psychosis is, it's paranoid schizophrenia, from my understanding. I, I hear disembodied voices jabbering at me, threatening to kidnap and torture me to death. I believe in right. vast FBI wow. conspiracies. I, I believe my family and friends are all in on it. I, I see doctored pictures of myself in the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue. I mean, this is this has been my life for four and a half years in mm. October 2007. On that wow. night, I found my way to this fancy downtown hotel. A fancy downtown hotel. Yeah, and, you know, blending in, man, with my tuxedo. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, just like you know, any guy in a tuxedo. Right. I, mean, this is gonna, I, I go to the bar, and somebody had set down a half-finished drink. I, I drank a drink because I didn't have any money. To, so I drank a drink, and I found myself at the threshold of a ballroom. It was, hmm. uh, it was the, I think, the Marriott Hotel. Right. I, I'm standing there thinking, I'm going to go, and in the ballroom was a wedding reception. Now, I'm thinking, you know, I'm going to go into this wedding reception. I'm going to just blend in because I really I want something to drink and something to eat. But I felt I could kind of pass myself off as a wedding guest. Okay. That would have worked. I've seen a wedding crasher. That would have worked. In my tuxedo. Right. As I'm standing at the threshold of that ballroom, I realize, at some level, I realize that in the previous few years, five couples had gotten married who were my friends. And these were like 10 of my closest friends. In the, in the years leading up to 2007, 10 of my closest friends had gotten married, invited me. And Johnny, out of those five weddings that I was invited to of my closest friends, do you know how many I showed up at? How many? Zero. Wow. Not one. Oh, that's and painful. Oh, and one couple had asked me to serve as best man. I didn't even oh. show up at that wedding. So at this oh, end, goodness. At the same time, the I, I'd hear these disembodied voices. For four and a half years, I've been hearing the, the voices. They were my spouse, or so okay. I considered them. I was mm. married to this conspiracy, this world in which the FBI was trying to pin 
9-11 on me because I'd inadvertently befriended oh, wow. a 9-11 hijacker or the FBI was recruiting me to be a top secret undercover operative. I mean, these were the delusions under oh, which I man. had been living. So, yeah, serious ones too. Jeez. They were, oh, they were serious. I could go on. <laughs> the, right. the, point, the point is the aha moment was, you know, I, I realized everything of a material nature was gone. Mm. I, 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 the, 10 people who loved me the most in my life, my closest friends, I hadn't gone to their weddings. I was nowhere near employable. I was going into long-term homelessness. And that's when the aha moment hit. That I, okay. at some level, I knew I had to pursue a, a spiritual path. I, I needed to pursue a path of improving myself, of bringing value to the world around me. I had to work very, very hard. I, I knew that. That night, I went home to my Flophouse Hotel. I smoked the last of my meth. I smoked my last little bit of, of marijuana. The next morning, I got up and started working, man. And uh, now it's 20 years So people always say, you know, like, marijuana can be a gateway drug, you know. So don't start at all because it might lead to more. Uh, and I know you mentioned using pretty much everything out there. Um, what do you think? Is marijuana a gateway drug or is that just based on each person? In my opinion, and this is only me, it's not so much what you do or what you use, it's why you use it. Mm. If you're using marijuana to escape, if you're using marijuana as a solution, if your problems are such that you don't deal with your problems except to use marijuana, then maybe, maybe it's not right for you. And, and you know, always go with your own instincts. Never, never co-opt what works best for you because Ed Cressy or someone else said so, you know, you, the listener, you know yourself and inside you always have the answers and you always know your path. It's just a matter of bringing that to the surface. But as to whether or not marijuana is a gateway drug, if you're using it as a solution to your problems, then maybe it's something you want to examine. If you're using it in a responsible way, you know, if you're not behind the wheel stone, if you're not, um, you know, if you're not spending money that you should be, that you might better be used putting food on the table or roof over your head, then it might be a different situation. But it's why you're using it, not so much what okay. you use. Why is the why important? Why is the why important why you're using it? Because if you're using, if, if you're someone like me who are using drugs as a solution, then, you know, drugs, they will work as a solution, but when drugs fail as a solution, they often fail catastrophically. And that, that's what happened for me. You know, my one of my real problems was I never pursued my dream of being a writer. My, my lifetime dream was always to author a book. Yet okay. I never did it because drugs presented an easier path. It was an illusion. It was a false path. But the, the, the drugs would never get me the feeling of satisfaction, the feeling of fulfillment that I ultimately got from achieving my dream. Mm. I achieved my dream of writing and publishing a book no amount of drugs, no amount of getting high, no amount, um, no amount of the of the false feelings of self worth would. So you know, when I did drugs, I used to go to. Uh, I had this this drug dealer. He was. Uh, he, he reminds you a little bit of Joe Pesci. You know the actor. Right. My my dealer. He was just this charismatic guy. He was larger than life. He was like. Uh, he was like a mobster from the movie. He wasn't a real mobster, but he, he was like the mobster you see in the movie. He was just gregarious and presents this. And we would party at the strip clubs. 
He knew the he knew the women who worked there. We would party at the hotels. He stayed in a different hotel almost every night of the week. He had friends everywhere, and and this was like to me the most glamorous life that one could imagine. He was just smoking meth and running around the strip clubs and the hotels, and to me this this was but not, that would never have gotten me to the point of what it was to get up before dawn every day for years and sit in my chair with my laptop computer and my French press of, of coffee next to me and pound away at that laptop writing my book and, and overcoming the demons inside me, overcoming the inner critic, overcoming the doubts that I could never be a writer and I was deluding myself and my dreams. Right. Overcoming all that, all the strip clubs, all the hotel rooms. I mean, we could have been in the Riviera in France or at the in the clubs in L.A. It, it would have never given me the feelings of fulfillment and satisfaction that sitting in my armchair every day before dawn writing my book ultimately gave me. And that's why if we're using drugs as a solution, my problem was never having written a book. My solution had to be applying myself to writing that book. When right. I use drugs as a solution, as you know, my solution is, okay, I'll forget about writing a book. I'll go to the strip clubs. That got me where it got me. I, in, in many ways, I'm lucky that I ended up in that hotel ballroom. I'm, I'm lucky on October 2007. I'm lucky that I ended up steps away from long-term homelessness in that flophouse hotel. I'm lucky I ended up not having showered or brushed my teeth in months and wearing a filthy tuxedo and having screaming matches with people who ain't even there because I was in meth psychosis, because all of that pushed me to a point of adopting a spiritual path. My spiritual path is one of bringing value to others that manifested itself in writing a book, which is my lifetime dream. Now I don't need drugs. I don't want to do drugs. I don't care if I, I don't care about drugs. I have nothing against it. If you do drugs, that's fine. It doesn't make you a, a good person or a bad person in my mind. You, right. know, you have your reasons. I don't judge you. But for me, I don't right. care drugs because i found that spiritual path and i've achieved my dream right right and now you know you're clean you're well you're doing a lot uh you know you, you mentioned you know a lifelong dream of you know being a writer and now you have a book coming up um i think the title of the book is uh, my addiction and recovery yeah. uh just because you're done with drugs doesn't mean drugs are done with you talk about that book yeah so that's that that's my book and the, the subtitle thank thank you for the opportunity to mention it the, what happened was when I quit drugs in October 2007, I discovered just that, that because you're done with drugs doesn't mean drugs are done with you. I continued to experience this paranoia about the FBI. I continued to believe that FBI helicopters were getting set to zoom down to my rooftop and FBI SWAT teams were getting set to rappel into my windows and drag me off. I, I had this belief that I inadvertently befriended a 9-11 hijacker. It's a long story, but basically when I was doing a lot of kickboxing, I, I used to be an amateur kickboxer. I was never any good, but I used to compete a little bit. That, right. In the year 2000, I'd gone to Bangkok, Thailand. I'd become friends with a guy who was uh, a nice guy, a Muslim guy, a guy from France. Who, uh, we, we never saw each other after 2000, but I came to believe he'd actually been one of the 9-11 hijackers. And, really? You know, yeah, now for, I, he looked a little bit like him, but you know, other than the conspiracy and the FBI helicopters and the disembodied voices, I had no reason to believe he was actually a hijacker. And I did okay. things, you know. The I would 
submit a lot of tips to the FBI about this guy. I never, I never lied. I never made anything up, but I, I would tell the FBI, Hey, this guy looked like a hijacker. And I would send him repeated tips. Um, I never accused the guy, you know, his name is Omar or the name I give him was Omar. Uh, Omar was my friend in Bangkok, but I never accused Omar of things he didn't do, even though I was in the psychosis, but I would do shameful things. Once I wrote the, the FBI brought me in to interview me about Omar because I'd sent okay. too many tips. Uh, okay. What I did was I email. I sent Omar an email at one point telling him that the FBI had interviewed me about him. You know, and I, I'm deeply ashamed of that because right. uh, for on a number of levels, I, I used to think I was an undercover FBI operative and I was infiltrating the terrorists somehow or – you know, then mixed in was the, I believe the FBI had wrongfully targeted me and maybe people mistakenly believed Omar was a, was a terrorist. And there were all these things going on, Johnny. The, the point is, when you get back to things like, is marijuana a gateway drug and, and what are the problems we use, you know, I, I, or, or what are the problems we use drugs to attempt to solve? I never set out doing a line of cocaine when I was 17 years old, intending that someday... <clears throat> I would be the, at the, the victim of an FBI conspiracy and associating with 9-11 hijackers. You know, I never set out. I, I started drinking to have a good time. Right. My inhibitions. I started smoking marijuana for the same reasons. But these decisions I made had me on a, on a path, and the path wasn't clear at the time. But for your listeners, you know, it, it doesn't make you a bad person. It doesn't make you morally wrong to do a line of cocaine or to smoke a joint or, or to have a couple of cocktails, put right. all morals aside for what it may be worth. You know, consider if you are using drugs or drinking as a solution, don't follow my path, which, which is to be sending emails to people you suspect might've been associated with hijackers and are really undercover Mossad operatives or friends, counterterrorists. Right. I mean, that's, right. I, I say this to make a point. The point is that my choices doing a line of coke or, or, or a little bit of meth led me to this point of psychosis and, and just such a twisted world that I inhabited. And this world of psychosis and delusions was as real as this conversation we're having, Johnny. Right. This is right. the path that Rose got to me. So just to get back to your question, the, the psychosis, the, uh, the schizophrenia-like condition, to, to this day, I continue to hear disembodied voices mm. from, time, from time to time. And, and I've learned okay. to partner with them. Now they're like my friends. And I know it's, it's a weird thing to say. <laughs> they say, yeah, Ed, Ed, you're doing great. You know, it's like having a little cheer. And, and I don't, they don't interfere with my life. I don't hear them unless I want to hear them. Um, and I still, to this day, entertain beliefs about government interest in my life. You know, it, it's okay because I've used all of it to prove to society that when society extends a second chance to someone like me, I benefit, but society benefits also. And believe it, society sometimes benefits even more. Uh, Johnny, for years now, I've been volunteering, serving persons who are or were incarcerated. Okay. I work, I I go, uh, I volunteer weekends inside some of California's most notorious maximum security prisons. I work with men, they are men's prisons that I go to. Uh, I work with men whose society is labeled among the very worst of the very worst. These are guys who have been convicted of violent crime, murder in many cases, 
these men are almost all gang affiliated. You know, they come from the Crips, the Bloods, the AB, the, the Aryan Brotherhood, the Nortenos or whatever. And, and Johnny, I sit down with these guys and I work with them. And right away it becomes apparent that because of the unfair advantages society gave me, and, and let's face it, Johnny, the unfair advantages are because of my skin color, which right. is white. I'm, I'm white. And because of my socioeconomic background, which is relatively privileged, because of these unfair advantages I receive, I'm outside of prison. It, it ain't because I'm a better person. It's mm. not because I made better decisions. It's because when I was, you know, eight years old, my parents were taking me to a beautiful swimming hole down the country road to, to play in the water and express myself and use my imagination. Whereas if I had been born as a person of color in an inner city, when I was eight years old, I would have been where these guys who I work with in prison were, getting jumped by a gang or you right. know, join the gang. Those are your choices. You join the gang, you get stomped. Or these guys will tell me stories about how they open their front door and right there on the porch was a person bleeding to death from a stab wound. Wow. Yep. This is eight years old. So, you know, Johnny, what, out of all the help I receive, some of the most meaningful has come from persons who are or were incarcerated because they taught me, as obvious as it sounds, they taught me that it's really only my skin color, my, my white skin and my privileged socioeconomic background and the unfair advantages that society bestowed upon me as a result that make it so I'm outside of the prison walls, whereas they are inside. And inside, of course. Yeah, these are powerful. Right. As obvious as it sounds to say, it's much more powerful, at least for me, it's very powerful when you live it. And I got the opportunity to live it. And that's why my, I'm not recommending become a meth addict. By no means, avoid meth addiction take a better path if you can. But you know, Absolutely. my turn into a twisted blessing. And, and the other thing I'll just say in, in a very, very long rambling answer to your straightforward question is the other source of most meaningful help I received truly was from persons in law enforcement. Mm. I'm so grateful to the FBI I'm so grateful to the San Francisco Police Department. By no means do we condone every act that's been taken in the name of law enforcement, right? We Absolutely. know terrible things have been done in the name of law enforcement. We know that. But I personally also know that there are some beautiful women and men, uh, incredible, amazing persons serving law enforcement who helped me turn my life around and do the same for others. I'm, I'm very grateful for the second chance that law enforcement gave me. I'm very grateful to our sisters and brothers who are or were incarcerated and who are turning their lives around and inspire me. Just been very fortunate and in a long rambling way, <laughs> that's right. what my book is about. Right. Well, I mean, no, that's, that's great, actually. Um, you know, glad you're touching the law enforcement part as well because um, I'm just going to ask a question here real quickly. Um, you know, if you have a neighborhood that's known to be a pedophile, uh, sometimes everybody finds out they want that neighbor gone. Uh, the, the, the community come together to keep an eye on that neighbor. Uh, you keep your child away from that neighbor. You do everything you can to possibly remove that neighbor from the neighborhood or to kind of castrate that neighbor, right? Uh, if you know your neighbor is fighting dogs, you probably do everything you can to make sure that a police, you know, uh, a police department come in, you know, take a look at that and investigate it. Um, so when we're talking about law enforcement, uh, you know, I think a lot of things that, you know, people always want to want to know is, you know, I, I mean, of course, you know, we don't believe all law enforcement are bad. I mean, a very small percentage of them 
uh, are the terrible ones, even though they're kind of making me look like fool for saying that based on the videos we've seen during the protests and how uh, they're going around just smacking people and doing all these dangerous things and deadly things to, uh, to protesters. But what I'm saying is this, right? How come we can't get enough of them or majority of them to come out and say, look, what our officer did in San Francisco was wrong. What our officer did in Detroit was wrong. Uh, what our officer did in New York was terrible, but we're not trying to do that. But we do have to find a way to correct it. I mean, why is that union much more stronger than human rights and justice? I don't know. Mm. I, don't, I don't know. You're not the first person to ask me this question. I hope, you know, maybe you and I can sink again a little bit down the road when I can have a better Absolutely. answer. I, I know one thing that I believe to be true is that some officers do what you and I would consider the right thing, meaning mm. they, do, uh, they do disclose they do disclose what their fellow officers have done that is either illegal or uh, or is wrong. But we don't all, we don't always know that they've done that because they're they're protected by the internal protocols and the internal systems. So if I was a cop and I went to Internal Affairs and said, "Hey, officer, so and so did this and it was wrong," nobody would ever know that outside of Internal right. Affairs because they they, right. would, they would protect my identity uh, for various reasons. So uh, I, I, I'm kind of, uh, I'm a little bit afraid right now that I'm coming across like I'm defending. Um, no, no, you're not. No, you're not. You, you just, you're just talking. You're fine. Keep going. Oh, cool. Okay, thank you. So I, I think the, the, probably the best answer for you and your audience is I really don't know. It's a, it's a great question to ask. And as I work more closely with police officers and as I work more closely with communities affected by addiction and incarceration, I would love to come back with a better answer to that question. Right. An answer people deserve to have. And, you know, it's a it's a blight uh, on law enforcement when it, it, it undermines so much good work that so many women and men in law enforcement are doing. Uh, there's, right. I, I know a right. guy who, uh, I knew a guy who grew up, pretty much he grew up homeless. He would go work at Burger King to feed his family. And he would, on his way home, he would have to bury his earnings in the snow because if he tried to carry the money he earned at Burger King into his apartment building, drug dealers would beat it out of him. So he had to hide his money. So and he, this guy was practically homeless. He went on to become a law enforcement officer. He's a cop mm. in San Francisco. And now right. he goes out of his way to help homeless people. Mm. And the one, the one thing that people keep telling him is that they don't believe he's a cop because he's too nice. Right, right. Doesn't fit the profile, right. <laughs> yeah, and the point is, um, you know, the, all the amazing work that, that this man, my friend, and the other women and men in law enforcement, all the incredible work they do, of, of which is, is a lot, it gets undermined when we have, uh, when we have people who get harmed by law enforcement. It, it, it puts a... It, it makes a blight on all the great work, and I hope to do something to change that. The uh, the people I work with are very dedicated. The volunteers that I I serve that serve with me inside prison and in jails. There, there's a lot of people looking at solutions, and I just hope and pray that in the months and in the days and months to come, that 
I will find better answers along with all the women and men out there who are working just as hard as me, if not far harder to, uh, to solve some of society's problems because they're, they're pressing problems. They affect a lot of people and we need to find solutions and we need to in- implement them if we're going to have a fair and just society, which is what we need to have. Absolutely. And under no circumstances during this conversation, uh, I think I've hinted that you're a cop. So hopefully no one listening and saying, hey, you work with the FBI, maybe he's a cop. He's not. Uh, he's just a good dude. I happen to work with everyone and just trying to help everybody. And we, you know, here at Point know that we appreciate, we appreciate that. Um, so, you know, part of your story was being arrested by the FBI and then turned around and getting a community award from the FBI. Um, so how did that happen? Like, what was the award for? What was, were you doing something for them in particular? What happened? It speaks so much to the FBI's credit that they recognized me for my work serving persons who are or were incarcerated and helping uh, lower addiction rates in the San Francisco Bay Area. Basically, I didn't know this, but every year the FBI awards 57 Americans this, uh, they call it the Director's Community Leadership Award. And the reason Mm. it's 57 is there are 57, or there are 56 FBI field offices, and then there's the 57th is something, I think, technical, something having to do with uh, tech work. But the point is, so every year, and this has been going on since the 1990s, I want to say, every year the FBI brings these 57 Americans to headquarters in Washington. Some of these are are individuals who who educate the public about Muslim uh, communities and and, uh, Muslim culture. Some of them are people who who support LGBTQ uh, awareness. Some of them combat drug addiction. Some of them help uh, to keep youths off of pathways that might lead them into gang activity. Uh, if you remember uh, Cindy McCain, Cindy McCain won the same award or was recognized as the same award that I was for her work to protect victims of human trafficking. So this right. is how the FBI does. And we all got to meet the, the director of the FBI himself was there out of all the many demands upon his time. He took, uh, he took time out of his day to, to preside at the ceremony. It was a beautiful thing. And just to back up a little bit, like I mentioned, when I quit drugs in 07, I, I continued to have intense paranoia around the FBI. I believed that this guy Omar had somehow had been affiliated with the hijackers, the terrorists, and they wouldn't come after me. Uh, eventually, Johnny, I realized that if I was going to bring value to society, I was going to have to face my fears. Mm. I was going to have to... So I, a lot, I, I pursued a parallel track of instructing Krav Maga, which is, if you're not familiar, it's uh, self-defense. It looks a lot like martial arts. Right, right. Yeah, yeah pretty, pretty serious stuff. It's, yeah, it's, it's serious stuff. It's, not, it's, you know, it's self-defense. It's, it's you, stuff you only want to use if your life uh, or safety or the life or safety of other innocent persons is threatened. But along the way, I've been a Krav Maga instructor. This is a way of uh, improving myself. And I, I used Krav Maga to, I, I used, I, I didn't use it, like physically use it, but I went to the uh, boys and girls clubs and I volunteer coached self-defense for the kids there to help instill self-confidence in them. So I, I took that Krav Maga and applied it in my instructing skills to other, uh, other areas. I would do, I taught courses for Google and LinkedIn. I did a course for Cisco. Um, the, the point is along the way, I'd also been volunteering as a first responder 
in San Francisco. I worked with the fire department. I took a lot of courses and got certifications as a volunteer first responder. All of that kind of came together when I discovered one of my Krav Maga students was also an FBI SWAT team agent. Mm. He's a great guy, really, really nice guy. I think he played football in a Big Ten school and had had been uh, special operations in the military. Just a really nice, genuine guy. I approached him one day after a noontime cardio class, and I said, hey, you know, I would like to, uh, I'd like to volunteer for the FBI the same way I do for the, the fire department. From there, I was able to teach the FBI SWAT team some unarmed self-defense. And it was, Johnny, it was so surreal that the very, the SWAT team, these were the very people I was so afraid of. Because it would have been the SWAT team in, in my delusions that would kick down my door and drag me away, right? So here I am serving as their instructor in unarmed self-defense. I taught them a couple of classes. They were just a great group of people, uh, wonderful. Uh, it, they nominated me to what's called the FBI Citizens Academy, which is uh, a it's very selective. Many, many people apply. Only a few are chosen. I, I got turned down actually three times before I finally got accepted. I had to keep persevering for years. I, I had to keep reapplying and applying. And so much of the FBI's credit, they, they knew about my history. They knew I'd been arrested carrying a loaded 357 pistol and a 16th of meth. Mm. You know, they knew about all the, all the weird uh, tips I would send in about 9-11 and conspiracies against me. But the FBI, they gave me a second chance. They wow. let me take the Citizens Academy. Uh, I am the, from, in, in my footsteps followed, uh, and, you know, I followed in the footsteps of many, many others. But after me, the FBI put another formerly incarcerated person through their Citizens Academy, this incredible woman. Her name is Shelly Winner. She served a year of federal time for meth, uh, I think, meth sales. And now she's just an incredible shining light. Shelly's just an amazing human being. So, you know, so much uh, to the FBI's credit. They recognized me for the work. And at the same time, I'd also been volunteering. This is when I started volunteering with incarcerated and formerly incarcerated persons. I start, I co-founded a Toastmaster-style meeting in a women's unit of San Francisco County Jail. For those who may not know, Toastmasters is a public speaking organization. Um, I was approached by a man, an incredible man, uh, Ernest, Ernest Kirkwood. He served, I think, 30 years uh, for, I, I believe, he, he was convicted of murder. I, I believe he was tried under the death penalty. Um, but anyway, he, he served, and Ernest just turned his life around. He's a fountain of wisdom. He, uh, he approached me to start this Toastmasters meeting in the women's unit of county jail. The meeting continues to this day. We started in 2017. We had to stop because of the virus. Okay. And all these things, they lead me to the meaningful life. That problem that I was looking to solve with drugs, the problem that I don't, I never thought I brought value to the world around me, that I was just this loser, bullied kid in the high school hallways who couldn't compete on the sports fields, the, the me who I used to be who liked to read books and escape into fantasy worlds, that loser kid that I took with me through my adult life. Now, all of a sudden, or not all of a sudden, but through the course of years of hard work and being inspired. Now I'm a person who brings value to the world around. That's beautiful. Yeah. Now I'm That's a beautiful, man. who serves others and the FBI recognized that. And I, I'm so grateful to the FBI and again to our sisters and brothers who are serving time or have served time. 
who are working much harder than I am and, and contributing far more than I to their communities. It's, uh, it's a beautiful thing in many ways. I'm so grateful to be playing some small role in all of it. Yeah, and, and you know, um, obviously being in Carlsford and coming out helped you. Um, you know, and the FBI being involved, you know, to give you another chance in life and be able to do something meaningful. And same with the women you mentioned as well. Um, but there's so many that, you know, come out of prison, uh, they can't really find a meaningful job in society. You know, you get that stain on you from being an ex-felon or whatever the case may be, and no one wants to touch you. Um, you know, I just wonder, like, what was your thought on Like, how do we help these folks get back, get, you know, reintegrated back into society where they can actually apply for a job, and they can actually get a job or get some kind of training. Because in my opinion, uh, you know, going to prison doesn't rehabilitate you at all. You know, you come out, worse than usually go in, you can't get a job, now you got a record, it's a mess. You end up going back in there. So how do we fix that? What what, what, what do you think uh, some of the things we can do to start helping folks coming out to be able to get back and be a, a positive part of society again? The best way I know is to support organizations that are already doing that kind of work. So, okay. one, can I say the name of the organization I'm a part oh, of? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Please share. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. It's called Defy Ventures. Defy, but that's a D E F Y, correct? At, yeah, exactly. Like okay. Defy the odds. Defy to define is, the odds. Yeah, that, I went through their program. I'm actually on the board of advisors for the North okay. chapter. They are nationwide, they're in uh, different states. And they deliver entrepreneur and employment training for currently and formerly incarcerated persons so that okay. you, know, you get out of, uh, you served your time, you know, you've done, you've done your time, you paid your debt to society. America's the land of second chances, or mm. we're supposed to be anyway. So, you know, if, you've, if a person served her time or his time, we as a society need to, uh, need to recognize, I feel we need to recognize that and allow the person to hold down a job, to vote. To, uh, to, to really have the, the rights um, conveyed upon an, uh, an American citizen who has, you know, the people who serve time, like me, we've made our mistakes. Absolutely. We, we've made our mistakes. We've paid our debts. And now we deserve, uh, we deserve to, to be part of what America is supposed to be, that land of second chances. So I'm sorry to get back to your question. Support organizations like the Five Ventures, uh, in your local communities, there are almost certainly faith-based organizations. There are nonprofits that deliver that do second chance work. Second chance meaning, if a person served time, they will get uh, employment training. They'll get uh, job opportunities. There's uh, just go on to Google and look up Fair Chance Movement. Um, contact me if you want. But you know, I uh, I don't know if you'll have my name in the show notes so so people can spell it. Yeah, it will be. But absolutely, feel free to uh, give out you know contact information and social handles and all that. Feel free to share with the user with the oh, listeners. That's fine. Yeah. Oh, great. Yeah, just you can email me uh, uh, Ed dot Cressy E D dot K R E S S Y at iCloud dot com or my website www dot E D K-R-E-S-S-Y dot com and just, you know, write, hey, I heard you on the Point Noted podcast and uh, I want to do something to support Second Chance work. I'm, I'm working, I'll tell you if you buy a cop, not not to promote my book. Uh, on this. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. It's fine. Go ahead. <laughs> go, hey, listen, you on the show, baby. You on the show. Listen, <laughs> throw it all out there, my man. Throw it all out there. <laughs> Thank you, my man. I appreciate that. <laughs> we, uh, we recently donated... We donated 165 copies of my book 
to men incarcerated in Pelican Bay State Prison. This is the prison okay. in And the, hopefully these men, these are all men I've worked with, who, or most of them I've, I've met personally. Uh, these are all men dedicated to tran- turning their lives around the uh, transformative program of employment and entrepreneurism. Hopefully my book will inspire them to further turn their lives around the way I've been inspired to do. The, the point is for your listeners, if you buy a copy of my book and email me, just tell me you got my book, you heard me on the Point Noted podcast, on your behalf we will donate one copy to an incarcerated person somewhere in the United States. That's amazing. Way you can contribute, or uh, just just get a hold of me somehow, and we'll we'll work. I'll work with you to find how you can best support the uh, the second chance movement in America. It's gaining traction. We got a lot farther to go, but there are remarkable women and men doing incredible work, and we're just going to keep doing more and more of it. That's amazing, man. That's that's beautiful. Love to hear it. it, it it's all about helping those that need help. Um, I think uh, you know we have so many beautiful souls in society. Uh, but too often we get caught up by the black souls that, uh, you know, that are just blocking the good, you know, from shining. So there's so many good out there. And what you guys are doing, you know, because my heart always goes out to those that come out. Like, I get it. You're a criminal. You commit a crime. You got to go in. That's fine. But as long as you're coming out, I feel like we should help you get settled back again, you know. And otherwise, you're going to go back in there. Uh, so for, you know, Divide Ventures and Fair Chance and Second Chance, you guys being able to run things like that. Uh, beautiful programs are giving people second chance. That's amazing. So, uh, you know, keep 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 doing that good work, my man. Definitely a good thing. That's beautiful, Johnny. I'm so happy to hear you say that. Absolutely, man. Um, so before we wrap up here, um, so when you're not working and you know helping folks out, how do you relax, man? How do you relax this day? What do you do to relax? I, I meditate. Meditate a lot. I uh, I pursue a path of spirituality. I try to gain a deeper relationship with a, a God that I believe exists. I don't understand her completely, but, you know, I've found that spiritual pathway can lift us from some very, very trying circumstances. I mean, I, I was sunk into incredible paranoia, fear for years and years, and there was this flimsy reed that I would hang on to, and that reed was God. And, uh, you know, that, that got me through a lot. There's a one of my favorite quotes is from George Harrison of the Beatles. Uh-huh. So George Harrison says, everything can wait except the search for God. And George right. Harrison, and he was in the Beatles, considered by many the greatest rock and roll band in the history of music. George Harrison uh-huh. is saying, even the heights of rock and roll stardom can wait. But that's wow. God cannot wait. And when I apply that in my life, yeah. And, and that spirituality manifests itself in many ways. For some, it's religion. Religion's awesome. I'm a member of a faith-based community myself. For some, it's uh, meditation, which I do a lot of. For some, uh, you know, that search for God means gratitude, service to others. For some, it's, uh, you know, triathlon. Some people find, find God in the triathlon. Some people do it. You know, whatever, whatever God may or may not be, if such a thing as God exists, he's in your heart. You know, she's, right. she's inside you, or he or it, or whatever label you want, term you want to use. Um, you know, God, God's inside of you. If you choose to believe a God might exist, you, you can search inside yourself. You know, pastors, rabbis, uh, Zen teachers, I've, I've met with them all. They're all awesome. They're incredible people, at least the ones I've had, the Catholic priests, all the ones at least I've had the good fortune to interact with uh, have taught me so much. I've, I've read the Dalai Lama. I've read... Uh, 
Nelson Mandela is one. I know Nelson Mandela is not necessarily a religious figure, but to me, he's deeply spiritual. Um, you, you know, just to, for me, it's a path of exploring, finding what different people have done, listening, listening. They say, uh, you know, they say if you want to, or uh, Jimi Hendrix, he says, uh, knowledge speaks, but wisdom listens. Mm. Right? I think that's Hendrix. Um, so, you know, the more I do that, and, and to, you know, to, to answer your question, you know, when I, on my spare time to relax, I pursue that spiritual pathway. It's beautiful, man. Wow. Yeah, I'm very good at listening, so I guess I have a lot of wisdom. I always know it. <laughs> you're a wise individual, I'll tell you that. You come across like you've got some good wisdom, my man. Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate that, Ed. Hey, man, it was uh, uh, it was definitely nice to uh, to have you on. Uh, it's, it's just to talk, man, to talk positive stuff, you know, how to overcome uh, coming from addiction uh, to being an author, to being a helper, to being... Uh, such a big positive light in society now helping folks out. I think it's good for people to hear that, uh, knowing there's always a light at the end of the tunnel. Um, but before we wrap up here, I got one more question I didn't get a chance to actually uh, ask you is, um, when you're dealing with people that have addictions, right? You know, a lot of times we look at it as, saying, oh man, I don't know why he's doing that. Or, you know, I'm not drinking, or I'm not using drugs. Why is he doing it? He needs to do something else with himself. Um, what's the best way to, uh, to address that? Like, what's the best way to help somebody that has an addiction? Human beings are such complex individuals that I couldn't say there's one best way. The way I know the best, which works for a lot of us, is the 12 steps. It doesn't mean that the 12 steps are by no means the only way that it may not even be the best, but the nice thing about the 12 steps is they are very good at saving lives. Right. Meaning, you know, a lot of people have walked into 12-step meetings at the very, very end of their rope and, and turned their lives around. So the 12 steps is good. Um, coaching, if you can afford coaching, there's some good coaching organizations out there. It's hard, you know, because you can spend a lot of money and, and not get a lot of value. And no, nothing against people who work in, I, I know some wonderful people who work in the rehab and the recovery space, but, you know, um, it's just read a lot, read a lot, talk to a lot of people, call me okay. or email me. I'm, I'm not an expert, but I, I am one other voice. The more people you talk to, the more people, you know, try, try to, uh, there, there are, you can read books by people who have turned their lives around. There's a, there's a good book called dream seller by Brandon Novak. He was a pro skateboarder and, and then he oh. became addiction. There's a great book by Darren Prince called Aiming High. He was a very uh, successful person who overcame his addiction. There's uh, Anne Lamott. There's, uh, uh, her name is Mary Carr, K-A-R-R. She wrote a great book called Lit about overcoming alcoholism. When you read and listen to the stories of people who overcame addiction and alcoholism, oftentimes you can start finding things in common and you can find things that apply to your loved one. You can find okay. things that apply to yourself. So again, you know, knowledge speaks, wisdom listens. If mm. you can start hearing and understanding the stories of people who have done what you want to do or who have done what you hope your loved one will do, that's a great way. And another important thing is to really model the behavior that you wish to see. So, you know, it's, it's so, and we, Johnny, we can talk for, you know, a long time about this, but, uh, if, if someone's struggling with an addiction, model the behavior you wish to see. So improve yourself. 
You know, if, if you're a sibling or your 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 spouse or your son, uh, if you're dedicated to improve, it's a difficult thing to do because you know when we're an addicted person, we're like a tornado, we're like this incredible vortex of our addiction. And the thing is, it's so easy to get sucked into that vortex. So what you want to do is you want to create a counter vortex. And right. you want to, first of all, not get sucked into the drama and something. And it's, it's very challenging because we're talking life or death stuff. But, you know, model the behavior. Find a way to improve yourself. The best way to help others is usually helping ourselves first. It's that old cliche right. about you're on the airplane and the oxygen mask come down. You know, you got to get that mask on yourself first before you can help anybody else. So, oh, that's facts. Yeah. <laughs> that is very true. You know, you got to save yourself. Yes. Right. Yeah, you got to save yourself first. Yeah. Right, right. Um, so, yeah, hey, thank you for, uh, you know, thanks for sharing. Uh, thanks for coming to the show, man. I really appreciate it. Um, I know we can uh, we can always do this again, and I would definitely reach out and bring you back on so we can catch up and see what you're up to these days and how things are going. Um, once again, go ahead and tell the folks how they can reach you again. I know you mentioned the website and the email address earlier, so go ahead and give that out again. Oh, yeah, email me anytime. Uh, e, uh, the, the email address is ed.kressy at icloud.com and or go to my website, www.edkressy.com. And actually on my website, you can get a free PDF, uh, 10 ways you can help someone who's struggling with addiction. You go on that right. free PDF, you get signed up for my newsletter. It's a free newsletter. It comes out every week. Yeah, you can get my Fantastic. book on it and you can contact me. I'm here for you. Fantastic, man. Ed is here. And if you can't find Ed, reach out to me yeah. and I'll put it sure I can, uh, I can find Ed. If I have to, I'll call the FBI. I'm sure they can find him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, Ed, thanks, my man. Appreciate it, man. Johnny, this is great. Thank you. Absolutely. Have a good one. You too. All right. Bye-bye now. You've been listening to The Point Noted Podcast with Johnny B and Rashad B. Follow us on Twitter at PT Noted and Instagram at Point Noted. Hit the subscribe and follow button to follow us and check out more episodes of us talking a whole bunch of shit. You've been noted.